So before we get into what we call the study of eschatology, which is the study of the end, the last things, I, I, I want to mention a few things. Um, first, Bible prophecy is important. The Bible that you hold in your hands is about 40% prophecy. 40% prophecy. And a large majority of that is end times prophecy. And so 40% of your Bible is not irrelevant. Neither is it incomprehensible. Okay? God didn't give us 40% of his word to ignore. And we shouldn't ignore 40% of the Bible because we think that it is incomprehensible. Jesus commands us to study prophecy. Matthew 24, verse 15. Jesus demands that we understand it, and then when we don't, he rebukes us. That's Luke 24, 25 through 26. You remember the story? Uh, Jesus is walking with the, uh, two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and uh, he says, so what's going on? And, and they're like, are you the only person that has been in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on? He's like, well, tell me about it. And they give him this sob story about hoping that, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, and then when they're done talking, Jesus says, you guys are a bunch of fools and slow to believe all that the prophets have said concerning the Christ. In the beginning at Moses and going through the prophets, he explains all things concerning himself. That's all prophecy, okay? And uh, so he rebuked them for not understanding and for not believing. And so I would tell you that if you study prophecy and interpret the language in its normal sense, like you would read a newspaper which we don't do anymore, a news article, the text will come alive to you, okay? Now, it's also important to mention that the doctrine of the rapture, which we'll be studying today, is not the most essential doctrine that God has committed to the church. If it was, the scriptures would clearly tell us when it was, but they do not. Now, I realize, um, looking out across the congregation today, I know where all of you have come from what churches you've come from. Uh, I know most of your backgrounds. Um, there might be a few people that I haven't seen before, so I'm, I'm not a prophet. I don't know where you've come from. Uh, but I know that some of the denominations that you've come from, some of the groups that you come from, you're going to differ with me this morning if you adhere to that denomination's uh, view on the end specifically. Okay? And so I, I, it makes it, I guess, interesting because I love a little controversy in my life keeps the blood flowing. Uh, but it, it's important to, to mention that it's not the most essential doctrine. If it was, we would know the exact date on all of those things, but we do not. Scriptures tell us that it's imminent, meaning that it can occur at any moment. Uh, there's no prophecies that must be fulfilled before it happens, and uh, it truly holds us in suspense as God intended. How many of you guys like suspense? Some of you do. I hate it. And that's why I get ready for what's coming next. It's like when you wind up a jack-in-the-box, you start preparing yourself, right? Because if you don't, I mean, you can get freaked out anyway, but if you don't, uh, it's, it's more, some of you would probably, your heart would do something crazy, and then we'd have to take you down to the emergency room and zap you. So, yeah. There's no timing in the scriptures, just clues. But because the doctrine is found in the Bible, it is important, and we should give it some thought but the timing of it is not a thing worth ruining relationships over. It should never be a fellowship breaker. Uh, this is one of the doctrines of the Bible that has and continues to divide, uh, I would say, immature Christians. So now argue about it. <laughs> there are fundamentals of the faith that bind us together, that actually make us the people of God, and the rapture is just not one of those fundamentals. Well, 
Christ's deity and humanity, his virgin conception, his sinless life, the nature of his atonement, the literal bodily resurrection, the doctrine of imputed righteousness by means of God justifying us. These are the kinds of fundamentals by which we are saved. These are the things that incorporate us into the body of Christ, make us the people of God. Those things I will divide over. I will break fellowship over those things. I cannot have Christian fellowship with, I can be friends with them, but I cannot have Christian fellowship with someone that does not believe in those realities. I cannot, not because I don't want to necessarily, because it is actually impossible. Okay, it's impossible. But the rapture falls into a totally different category of theology called non-essentials. Okay, non-essentials. Important and true, but not essential to salvation or Christian fellowship. The most important thing about the doctrine of the rapture is not its timing, but it's our preparedness. Our preparedness. Okay, it's not, that's, the issue is not when it occurs, but what my moral and spiritual state of affairs are when it happens. We're called to be ready so that when the groom comes for his bride, she's waiting for him, she's ready to wed. And, uh, so I have my position in the rapture, which I believe best agrees with the scriptures, which means I think you're wrong if you disagree with me. And, uh, and that's okay. Uh, if, you, uh, if you have another view, you disagree with me, right? Okay. So it's okay. You guys are all adults, right? Not all of you. Some of you. Yeah. So now when, we, when it comes to the doctrine of the rapture, we really must include a discussion about what is called the, the tribulation. So this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the tribulation and the rapture, and I hope to uh, answer a number of questions about it. Now when we refer to the tribulation in the context of the end times, we're not referring to uh, what we would call tribulations in general. We're not referring to um, the, the suffering that, that, that God's people experience across the world. Uh, the suffering and affliction that Jesus promised would come upon his people is something that is just completely different than what we are talking about when we say the tribulation. The tribulation of the end times has everything to do with a particular time in history, in the future, when God will pour out his wrath on sinful humanity in a concentrated and very specific manner. Uh, this period of time is spoken of by a number of prophets um, and by Jesus himself. In the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 18, uh, describes this period of, uh, of, of God's wrath. Now, I, I think I mentioned this last week. I, I do realize that for some of you, this is like drinking from a fire hose. And uh, so I'm going to try to turn down the pressure a little bit so that you don't drown. Uh, but you're going to have to pay attention. Is, is that okay to require that of you? Uh, pay attention. When you organize the various passages and the concepts that have to do with eschatology, uh, it requires concentration, and it's going to require uh, further study on your part. Also, this morning uh, is an overview, because my goal is to get to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which is our normal uh, and steady diet, is, is uh, one book at a time, verse by verse, through the text. Um, we'll get there eventually. But this is an overview this morning. It's not an in-depth study of the related passages. So let's, let's begin. Let's look at some of the passages um, concerning the tribulation. Let's begin here with Jeremiah 30, verse 7. At last, for the, that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall, he, Jacob, he shall be saved 
out of it. Of course, this is not Jacob the person. Jacob is the patriarch. He's the father of ethnic Israel, the Jews. And so Jeremiah is predicting a serious time of trouble that's on the horizon for Israel that will be unequaled in history. Jeremiah concludes this prophecy this way. He says, Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord, God, or I'm sorry, it goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind, it will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until it has done it, until he has performed the intent of his heart. In the latter days, you will consider it. So just a couple details. This time of God's wrath, it's it's called a, a furious whirlwind that will violently fall on the heads of the wicked. It's described as the fierce anger of the Lord that will not relent until it's finished its task and it occurs in the latter days. Sounds pleasant, doesn't it? Yeah. Jeremiah 30 also refers to the land promise in verse 10 and verse 18. It refers to the throne promise in verse 9 and the redemption promise in verse 22. Interesting how these passages that we've been looking at throughout the prophets and in the New Testament tie in these three promises nearly every time. Okay? It's almost like God's trying to tell us something, right? Let's move on. Daniel 12, verse 1. And as I said, this is an overview. I don't have time to get into all the details here, but there's some important things here. Angel is communicating with Daniel. And he says, at that time... Michael, that's the archangel, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Now, the sons of Daniel's people are the Jews. It's the children of Jacob. And the angel tells him that this unparalleled time of trouble is going to come upon the earth. And then at the beginning of the verse, he says, at that time, he's actually referring to all that he said in chapter 11, and it's ugly. So the question is, when is that particular time coming upon the earth? Daniel 12, 4 and 9, he says, but you, Daniel, I feel so bad for Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. He's telling Daniel this because Daniel is inquiring about the meaning of it all, and he says, it's none of your business. Well, then why did you give it to me? Because he's supposed to record it and pass it on. Okay. So when he gave it to Daniel, he says, seal it up, because the events predicted are for, the angel says, the end. This tribulation will come at the end. And then out of curiosity, verse 8, he says, what shall the end of these things be? And he says, don't worry about it. Seal it up. It's not for you to know. <laughs> this is what will happen. That's what you can know. But the timing of it, it's just not for you. It's not for you. So all we know from Daniel is at the end, there will be a time of unparalleled trouble that comes upon the earth. Now, Jesus also refers to the time. And just like Daniel in Revelation, he he divides the tribulation into two halves. And that's important for our discussion today, the tribulation being divided into two halves. Jesus called the first half of the tribulation the beginning of sorrows. It's just the beginning, he says. That's Matthew 24, verse 8. And the second half he called the great tribulation. It's Matthew 24, verse 
21. And then after Jesus describes the events of the first half of the tribulation, he says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Getting ahead of my own notes. And then he says, for then, following all of the, the beginning of sorrows, there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Isn't that a frightening statement? The worst thing that the world has ever seen is on the horizon, and uh, unless it was shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, for God's elect, he will have to shorten it. Now, he, can't, he cannot allow the elect to be consumed during this time because he's made too many promises uh, to them to preserve them. Now, as we know, the earth has seen some pretty terrible things, uh, even in the last hundred years. Uh, the Holocaust, Mao's communist China, the genocides in Uganda and Sudan, the atrocities in Syria and other Middle East countries. Currently, if you're not keeping up with uh, Nigeria, how many guys are keeping up with Nigeria? Christians are being slaughtered. 3,000 since January. 3,000 people murdered, uh, butchered, literally. What's happening in Myanmar, Afghanistan, many other places. But Jesus is saying that none will compare to this trial that is coming upon the earth. It's frightful. We don't know when it will begin, but we know how it will be initiated, and we know how long it will last. So that takes us to Daniel. But Jesus also talks about it, and Revelation makes it clear as well. So we want to have the scriptures demonstrate this for us. To preface all this, what happens is the, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel, and he tells him that God has determined 70, seven-year periods in which he's going to wrap things up. But each of these 70, seven-year periods has everything to do with the Jews and Jerusalem. So look at what Gabriel told Daniel. I would love to go through the whole prophecy with you this morning, uh, but that's going to be exciting for you to look at. If you want uh, a name to uh, uh, use as sort of a study help, uh, I think Gleason Archer is probably the best resource, uh, a Hebrew scholar who does a fine job of um, expositing the text. So the angel tells Daniel, he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sins, doesn't that sound nice? To make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, 70 weeks is literally 70 sevens, 70 sevens in the Hebrew language. The NIV is the only one that translates it literally. Why the NIV is the one doing that is strange to me, but. Literally, they say 77s, 77s. These 70 weeks or 77s are not referring to 77 calendar days, but to 77-year periods, 77-year periods. This is perfect use of the Hebrew word for seven. It's Shabua. For example, uh, in the book of Genesis, Jacob was told that he had to complete another week. He has to complete another week if he was to get Rachel as a wife also, because, you know, he was cheated out of her in the first part of the deal, but I think he was cheated with both wives. His father-in-law, who was a scoundrel, told him after he, you know, he woke up the next morning and found out that he wasn't married to Rachel, but he was married to Leah. 
And Jacob says, what's your problem? <laughs> what have you done to me? And concerning Rachel, he says, fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. The word translated week is the same Hebrew word shabuah from Daniel chapter 9. It means literally seven. So Jacob had to fulfill another seven. Seven what? Seven days? He wished seven years. Another seven years of service to that rascal. But Jacob kind of deserved it, if you know the story. So back to Daniel. Gabriel's talking about 70, seven-year periods concerning the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. Yeah, 77-year periods comes to 490 years. Well, when it comes to the predictions laid out in the prophecy in, in 24 through 27, we can only account for 69 of these seven-year periods in history. The last seven-year period remains, and therefore it's in prophecy it's a promise. It is yet to be fulfilled. So verse 27 says that this last seven-year period will begin when some mysterious person makes a covenant with Israel for one week. Do you think it's seven days? It's not much of a covenant, huh? Yeah. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even till the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So we see the word week again, same Hebrew word, Shabuah, for seven, same as verse 24. We're talking about seven years again, staying consistent with the context. Question for you, what does Gabriel say will happen in the middle of this seven-year covenant? The one that makes the covenant will do something abominable that brings desolation. Does that sound familiar? Talked about it last week a lot. This vile person who Paul refers to as the man of sin will commit the abomination of desolation. He will stand in the holy place. He will declare himself to be God. It will bring an end to sacrifice. It will bring desolations to the temple. Remember also what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, we're actually studying the text that Jesus said to study. Daniel says that this will happen in the middle of the seven-year covenant, after which Jesus says there will be great tribulation, such as will be unparalleled in history. It will be the worst thing the world has ever seen. Consider also what Daniel is told in chapter 12. From the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So from the time that this vile person commits the abomination of desolation, there'll be 1,290 days. He says that that event will occur in the middle of the covenant. Now, uh, 1,290 days is approximately three and a half years, which takes us from the middle of the tribulation to the end. The angel also tells Daniel that it will last for a time and times and half a time. Thank you. <laughs> Well, in the context, it's talking about the same things, okay, the same thing, rather. So a time, singular, equals one year. A times, plural, equals two year, and half a time equals half a year. So we have three and a half years again. Well, it's not the only place that says that. There's two places, three places in the scripture that talk about a three and a half year period. A Revelation 11:2 tells us that this will 
take place for 42 months following the abomination of desolation. Guess how long 42 months is? Three and a half years. So the tribulation will last a total of seven years. A seven-year covenant will be made with Israel. And that's Daniel 9, 27. That will initiate everything. Three and a half years into the covenant, the middle of the tribulation, the man of sin will set up the abomination of desolation, Daniel 9, 27. And then after the abomination of desolation, there will be another three and a half years. That's Daniel 12, 11. And if I know my math at all, three and a half years and three and a half years is seven years. Jesus calls the first three and a half years of the tribulation the beginning of sorrows. We've mentioned that, Matthew 24, 8. He calls the last three and a half years of the great tribulation, Matthew 24, verse 21. Perfect continuity between Daniel, Jesus, and Revelation. I must add, in Daniel 12, 11, when the angel tells Daniel that there will be 1,290 days that follow the abomination of desolation, uh, that is actually three and a half years plus 30 days. 30 days. What happens in these 30 days that remain? I don't know. We're going to find out. Okay? We're going to find out. Uh, I suspect that the 30 days are filled with rejoicing. Uh, the gathering of Israel, the reestablishment of the Davidic covenant, and Christ's earthly coronation. Because we've already talked about those three covenant promises have not been fulfilled. It's a divine promise. It's a divine decree. Isaiah says, basically, the sovereignty of God will ensure that this happens. Okay, so I expect that that's what will be happening. Now, remember how last week I said that numbers uh, are often not symbolic in biblical prophecy. And we looked at four examples in the book of Revelation where the numbers are the actual numbers. There's other things around it that are symbolic, but the numbers themselves are the actual number of things. Uh, if they're not, then Jesus lies in the text. Who wants to go that route? Okay, good. Uh, he says, this, these are, the seven stars are the seven angels. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Seven is literal. Stars, lampstands are not. Okay, so numbers are frequently literal in biblical prophecy. Okay. Well, the numbers that we've just looked at are the same in Daniel and Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation, perfect correspondence, and then also the events perfectly correspond between all of those books. Uh, I would say be very, very careful with trying to assign a symbol to the numbers and the events themselves. Each book verifies the information from the other. So I believe, according to God's promise, that we are talking about literal numbers and literal events, all historical events in the book of Daniel. Everyone that is from Daniel chapter 2 to the very end, those that were meant to be fulfilled in the past, were all fulfilled in the past, literally in history, every detail. The ones concerning the end, we should expect them to be fulfilled in the exact same way, okay. literally and in the future. But as I said, we don't know when the tribulation will begin. We just know the details from Daniel, Matthew, and Revelation. I know that you guys would love for me to set a date. Uh, I'm just not so presumptuous or foolish, okay? It's not my, my bag, okay? Okay, yeah, no promise of God will go unfulfilled. Nothing of his word will fall to the ground. So there you have the tribulation, this concentrated period of time where God's wrath is poured out on the earth, uh, and somewhere within that time frame, he will fulfill the land promise, the throne promise, and the redemption promise. So what about the rapture? 
Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians, say that super fast. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. I want to answer these questions. What is it, and when will it occur? Not the date, mind you. Not the date. There's a lot of date setters, aren't there? Yeah, there's a few on the internet right now. Um, you know it's going to happen, right? It's not going to happen. Not on those dates. Okay, let's read it. Paul says to this uh, really amazing church, it's one of the most amazing churches in the New Testament. I love Paul's testimony about them. He says that when I was with you, I shared the gospel with you, I discipled you, and I wasn't there very long. Most scholars think that he was there for maybe a couple months. And it's, it's up in the northern part uh, on the Aegean coast. And before Paul could get to Corinth, he says, merchants had come and preached the gospel before me. Is that amazing? That's, that's a great testimony. So he says to them, but I do not want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now by sleep, it's a euphemism. It means dead. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, the dead in Christ, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Look at verse 7 again. Paul says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now the two words in bold print there, caught up, are actually one word in the Greek, and because nobody can pronounce the whole Greek word in the text, we, uh, we abbreviate it to say harpazo, okay? The real word is uh, harpagesometha. Put that one on. Those poor Greek people, they were always saying that. Let me try that again. <laughs> the Latin equivalent is rapio, from which we get rapture, rapture. The word means to seize, it means to take by force, to carry off or to snatch away. And so what determines the definition of the word is always the context itself. In our passage, it says that those who are caught up are immediately brought into the clouds in the air where they meet the Lord. These people are raptured off the earth and into the clouds. Now that's not reading anything into the text. That's just what the text says, doesn't it? Does it say into the clouds meet the Lord in the air? And we're all familiar with where the clouds are and what it means to be up in the air, correct? Well, a favorite Christian apologist of mine says that there's no rapture in the Bible. And in his talk, he turns to this passage and said that all he sees is a resurrection. And then when he begins to interpret the passage, he pulls his knife out and he butchers the text, okay? It's not okay. It's not okay. I'm curious what he'll call it when he's snatched away into the sky. Not a rapture. <laughs> not a rapture. Now, he's correct about there being a resurrection at that time, 
but the rapture and the resurrection are two different things. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul discusses the resurrection of dead believers, which happens immediately before the rapture. I'll read it to you. Paul told the Corinthians, Behold, I show you a mystery. Now, a mystery is not something that people are trying to figure out. In the Greek, it means something that has been suddenly revealed, that was disclosed in the past. He says, we shall not all sleep. What's he mean by sleep? We're not all going to die. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. So a millisecond before the rapture occurs, every believer from every age will be transformed. This mortal body that is subject to corruption will become immortal. For, for those believers who are dead, when Jesus comes, they will be resurrected into an, an immortal, incorruptible body. For those believers who are alive when Jesus comes, while they're standing there, they will immediately be transformed and they will have an immortal, incorruptible body. And then the whole lot of us will be caught up together into the clouds where we get to meet the Lord in the air. So praise God, we'll not be taking these bag of bones into eternity as they currently are. You will have the same body. I'm not sure at what age exactly. Perhaps some assume that it's at the age when, you know, Christ was risen from the dead. I don't know exactly how they come to that conclusion, uh, but I'm going to look good. (laughs) I don't know why I said that, but we're all going to look good. Yeah. (laughs) Everything that we're subject to in the body now will be something of the past. Okay, glorious bodies, fit for eternity, and then snatched away. So there is a resurrection of dead Christians. There's a transformation of living believers, but both are raptured into the sky. Now, you can call that whatever you want, but denying that such a thing will occur is a denial of the text itself. This event will occur when Jesus comes, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, okay? And uh, if you don't believe it now, I'll be glad to argue with you on the way up, <laughs> if you're still willing to argue. So that's, that's the rapture, pure and simple. Next question. When will the rapture occur? (laughs) Fun stuff. Well, let's just continue on in the text, uh, because I believe context is important. Uh, The unfortunate thing is that we have a chapter break uh, with the number five there, from 1 Thessalonians 4 to 1 Thessalonians 5. God didn't put those numbers in there to confuse us. It's the same discussion. It's just continuing on. It's about the end times. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Here's what it says. But concerning the times and seasons, times and seasons of what? What was the discussion in the last passage? Transformation and rapture. He says, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. 
For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. may have been true back then, it's not today, but... But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Because God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, as he sums up the last section, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So let's examine the details of the passage here. In verse 2, Paul mentions the day of the Lord. And in verse 3, he tells us that, that on that day, sudden destruction will come, and those in darkness who are of the night, who are asleep or drunk, will not escape, verse 4 through 7. Why won't they escape? Because of their wicked unbelief and unrepentance. God has made them, the text says, an appointment with his righteous wrath. Can't say it any different, can you? But those who are children of light, he says, God has not appointed to wrath. The believer has an appointment with God's salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for them. Verse 9. What salvation are we talking about in the context? Understand, the word salvation means to be rescued from danger. Rescued from danger. What danger is Paul currently talking about? You know, I've read about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. It's a day of God's wrath. And the wrath of God is the most dangerous thing in the universe, right? It's the most dreadful thing that there is, most dreadful. The danger that Paul is talking about is God's righteous wrath. But Paul says that we have an appointment with salvation to be rescued from God's dangerous wrath. So a question for you. How do you think Christ will rescue us from the danger of God's wrath on the day of the Lord? What's in the context? Rapture. Or rapio. Arpazo. Pick one. Okay. Pick one. That's the context. If context means anything, I believe it does. We will be rescued from danger by a way of rapture. Now, we have, we have already been rescued uh, from the wrath of God in a spiritual setting because Christ absorbed all of the wrath of God for the believer. So consider the chronology of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. Chapter 4 gives us the doctrine of the rapture, which is appointed for the children of light. Chapter 5 gives us the doctrine of God's wrath, which is appointed for the children of darkness. All believers, whether they are dead or alive, will go up in the rapture before this wrath comes down on the children of darkness. Paul says it this way in verse 9 and 10, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake, that is, whether we're alive or we're asleep, we should live together with him. They will be raptured before the wrath of God comes down. Two reasons for that. We've mentioned one, believers cannot be subject to the wrath of God because Christ absorbed it for the believer. If we are exposed to God's wrath again, it would be double jeopardy, which is contrary to the doctrine of justification and the promise of God. Okay? Two, because that is what Paul is arguing logically and chronologically in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. So there, you have my theological and textual argument for what is called the pre-tribulational rapture. The church, God's people, will be brought up just before the wrath comes down. Okay? That's my position. If you differ with me, it's okay to be wrong. <laughs> 
We all have our positions, amen? This is what mine is, which I believe represents the text. If you have a different position, uh, I don't care, honestly. And when we sit down for coffee next time or whatever, it probably won't occur to me, like, these people, these post-trib, or he's, they're a filthy mid-trib person, or a no-rapturian, ugh, I just don't care, okay? We're going up at the appointed time. And, uh, and if you want to argue with me about its timing on the way up, please don't, okay? <laughs> Hopefully we'll all have grown up by then and we can handle it, okay? But as I mentioned at the beginning, the most important thing about the rapture is not your position, but your preparedness. It's your preparedness, okay? You and I, as the text says, whether alive or dead at Christ's appearing, we're going. And what will happen is that each of us will give an account for our life, the way that we've lived for Christ. Paul said, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, he means present with the Lord or absent, but we will all eventually be present, he says, but to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You see, on that day, everything will, lead, will be laid bare before the judgment seat. When he appears, all that we have done will appear before him. And there will be no taking it back, there will be no changing it. So the question is, what will you lay bare before him at his appearing? What will be exposed on that day? Nothing will be hidden from the all-seeing eye of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Nothing. Nothing. Now, I'm no fool. I know that there are some people in this room who are not looking forward to the, that day because of the things that you're dabbling in morally, spiritually, relationally, whatever. James says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Nothing speaks of imminence more than that, okay? Somebody is going to shout, I, I imagine, in the voice of an archangel, all rise, because the judge is about to come into the courtroom. And there'll be no taking back what you're doing. You'll be caught in the middle of it, okay? Today is the day of repentance, okay? Today is the day to walk pleasing before him, okay? So I would plead with you, knock it off, okay? Repent. Go to Christ for his grace, his energizing grace, and the ministry of the Spirit, he will sanctify you. He will wash you, okay? So that as we mentioned last week, you will not have to be ashamed at his appearing, but you'll come running out and welcome him, and it'll be a festive time rather than a time of grieving. Amen? All right. Go ahead and stand up. We'll pray. Now, I took you guys seven minutes long last week and you're getting out about seven minutes early this week, so I don't want to hear any complaining. <laughs> Let's pray, and then we'll wrap this up with some worship, okay? All right, well, Lord, I, I'm grateful for your word. I'm, I'm grateful for its clarity, for its consistency and its continuity. Lord, you've given it to us that we might not just possess it, but we might live in it and persevere with your word, Lord. And, and Lord, what is currently happening in each of the lives in this room today, I believe is more important than the rapture. The rapture is a means to an end. But Lord, I pray that you would impress strongly on everyone's heart that we are to live worthy of our King. Your Lordship is nothing to dabble with. And so Lord, help us to repent. Help us to walk with you in a way that 
is useful for your glory or it's well-pleasing to you. The day is coming. Nothing can stop it. Lord, help us to be ready. And as Paul said, encourage one another with these words. Edify one another. Lord, help us to be attentive to our brothers and sisters that we might help bring them along. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you. And, uh, yeah, in Jesus' name, amen.